Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is On the Horizon, China's Domestic Equity Market, and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm Curtis Butler, Investment Specialist on the Emerging Markets and Asia-Pacific Equities team, and with me today is Howard Wang, Portfolio Manager and Head of Greater China. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Happy to be here. So let's go ahead and jump right in. We're here to talk about China and a lot of the exciting things that are happening in China that have caught the attention of our clients across the world. And one of the most exciting developments has obviously been the inclusion of the domestic China names, what we call China A, into the MSCI indices starting the middle of last year. This is what experienced emerging market investors would call a big bang change in that index, an index that historically up until the middle of last year had roughly 850 securities, will by this time next year have as many as 1,200 stocks, all of those additions being domestic China names from large cap all the way down to mid cap. That is a gigantic change. What does this development mean to you, and what are you hearing from clients about how important this might be? Well, I think clients see it as a sea change, particularly from a overall perspective. If we take a look at the valuations, you know, China has really effectively been in a stagnant or a bear market now for some number of years, particularly since 2015. Or from an overall stock picking standpoint, which is that China provides just an enormous universe of secular idiosyncratic growth stories across the board and pockets of very deep value. So I think clients really look at this as a very, very big opportunity, one we haven't seen in a long period of time, to access a deep, liquid, broad market at what are pretty attractive valuations. Now, investors have been able to invest in China for a long time. What is different now? What is different about the makeup of the stocks they can buy today because of the changes in the regulation? Yeah, I think the biggest change, just taking a step back, is the Shanghai Shenzhen Connect program, which is effectively allows foreigners who do not have a so-called QFI quota to invest directly in China and, and to be able to convert that money back into their home currencies within a day. So I think this has made access much, much easier. I think the biggest thing is, is that when we look at the overall Chinese economy, it is not fairly represented in pre-existing indices. So MSCI China, it started from Hong Kong listed China Index, which was basically Tencent and a number of cyclical names, whether banks, commodities, telecoms, etc., basically the state-owned part of China, to something that included Alibaba and some other internet stocks, to what is the new universe now, which includes just a far greater variety of Chinese growth stories, whether it happened to be in consumption, whether it happened to be in manufacturing. The world has just gotten a lot bigger in terms of our ability to tap China's vast potential. Would it be fair to describe the China H market or the MSCI China market as old China, largely, and the opportunity we see domestically or in China A more as new China? Yeah, I think that's a fair description. I would look at MSCI China, which includes both the H shares as well as U.S. listed shares, and say what you get is old China, cyclicals, state-owned, plus internet. And that obviously misses a huge part of China, whether it's healthcare, uh, whether it's certain parts of technology, such as software and services, whether it's domestic tourism. So what happens now is we go from a world in which China was basically cyclicals plus internet to something just a lot more broad and diverse in terms of the types of opportunities that we can tap as investors. Now, how easy is it for foreign investors to access the market now? I know we have these new channels that connect they're historically QFee, which is another way to do it, a little bit more complicated. But has it really made things a lot easier for us as managers or for you as a manager or for the clients themselves? 
Well, I think for us as managers, because most of the accounts I run had the capability to invest in A shares anyway. But really, I think taking a step back, what did it require for a manager who didn't manage a onshore equity? All they need to do is just open a separate account, a so-called SPSA account, which is capable of trading connect shares. And that's just a multi-week procedural thing that you needed to do. You no longer needed to submit an application for a quota, wait for the application to be accepted, then wait breathlessly for the amount of quota that you might be able to get. So in other words, it's made China just very, very accessible and just like any other market that we invest in within greater China, which is my purview, or broadly speaking, Asian emerging markets. One of the fallouts of this entire process of inclusion into the MSCI indices is that the original weight, the starting weighting, or the inclusion factor, as MSCI calls it, was very low, meaning over time, we expect regulatory framework, currency framework, to improve to such a level that we can give Chinese stocks the full weight that they would otherwise deserve, the full free float weight, which is not the case today. Even after the big change we've seen recently, it's only a 20% inclusion factor. But eventually, when they approach a 50 to 100% inclusion factor and continue to grow, domestic China could be a very large part of the index on top of what is already MSCI China. So how big can this get? And how should investors think about the way to access that incredible growth potential and the incredible size of that market in global indices. Yeah, on a static basis, I think our numbers indicate that China ends up becoming 40% of emerging markets, which makes it just an overwhelming chunk, particularly once you think about other parts of emerging markets like, let's say, Taiwan or parts of Africa that are very sensitive to Chinese economic policies or places like Brazil, which have a commodity component. China becomes a pretty overwhelming force, I think, within an emerging market context. At that point in time, I think clients are already thinking about it. Well, does it make more sense then to split out China and to basically have managers managing emerging markets ex-China and to think about China as a separate allocation? I think these are the kinds of questions I think that people are wrestling with. The good news is, is that because the investability factor right now is still not for full inclusion, people have time to make these type of decisions. But ultimately, I think what investors, our clients, need to decide is, how much China do I really want? Will I be able to get that through my existing emerging market manager? When it's 40% of the index, does it make sense to have someone who's much more specialized looking at China, somebody with their own Chinese resources? And as a result of this potential, which is, I think, really just something that's going to become an actuality within the next, call it, 10 years or so, people need to wrestle with these questions on access, on style, and on the type of managers that they would really want to use. If a client agreed that this is a tremendous opportunity and said, I get it, I want access immediately, can they get that through a passive index? Or is it really much better in this case to go with an active manager? Well, they can certainly get it through a passive index. If what you want to get is state-owned banks, state-owned cyclical type of companies, independent power producers that burn dirty coal. The index, remember, is a reflection of historical choices that China has made and of China's path to where it is now. It reflects that whole path of modernization and industrialization that China went through. Does one want to invest in that longer term? Our personal answer is no, because that is a worn path that's resulted in high levels of loans to state-owned companies, a high level of leverage in the economy. So I think what we're looking at is the chance now to go through an active manager to basically invest in China's future as opposed to China's past. By buying an index, you by definition invest in China's past. Also happily, I think when you look at the active management universe, there are a lot of choices. There are a lot of different types of platforms. There are a lot of different types of styles. There are many different ways to generate alpha from an overall standpoint. So what we're looking at is an inefficient market 
where you can apply your choice of styles, your choice of manager to achieve ideal investment outcomes over time horizons that the clients want to be measured on. So from an overall standpoint, I think active management is, number one, the right way to tap into China's future growth. And number two, the best way for a client to be able to tailor what they need for their portfolios. On the subject of that future growth, are there particular sectors or themes, given all the change that we see and all the growth that we see in China domestically, are there particular themes that you're building in your portfolios or that you think offer the greatest opportunity over the long term? Sure. As a growth investor, I think it's easy to say that we look at three buckets, healthcare, technology, and consumer, to anchor our portfolios. And I do think that when we think about holistically China macro, that's the way that China is going to chart its future growth path. Now, for us specifically, as growth investors, we like healthcare services. We like healthcare outsourcing. These are nascent industries that are just gaining traction, as opposed to, let's say, healthcare companies where the primary business is delivering generics, just creating new formulas off of somebody's pre-existing intellectual property. That, I think, is, from a macro standpoint, something that is a necessity for China as the population ages, as people want better outcomes. And it's also something I think that China is very well placed to do in terms of human intellectual capital that's been accumulated, whether overseas in other companies or within China domestically. Second, from a technology standpoint, if we go to 10 years ago, what technology in China probably meant is light manufacturing, companies like Foxconn applying cheap labor to produce electronic goods, usually for consumers, sometimes for corporates, but always very, very simple. I think to us, what technology means now is software and services, because China is making a very fast transition to the cloud. And a lot of the kind of trends that we've seen in developed markets are going to become prevailing in China also. So technology for us is a broad catch-all to the way that humans interact with machines, to the way things are manufactured, and most importantly, to what I just mentioned, in terms of how we utilize the tools that are available to us to achieve better outcomes as businesses. And then third, in terms of the consumer, I think if you roll back 10 years, what being in a consumer stock meant in China was probably picking an area where there was very low penetration. Not every Chinese family had an automobile or had a television set or had a washing machine to where we are now, where Chinese consumers are looking for better products. They want more functionality. They want better brands. And then more importantly, I think from an overall standpoint, when we look forward 10 years, what Chinese consumers also want are new experiences, whether that's tourism, whether certain type of educational services and the like. So because of the diversity of China and because of the rapid rate of change, there's always something to do as a growth investor. And while we thematically are always looking at healthcare, tech, and consumer, our specific definitions of what we're doing in those sectors will vary over time as the Chinese consumer varies and as companies spring up to fulfill those new needs. I read an article recently that mentioned that Hollywood studios are now having to consider the demands and the tastes of the China market when putting their movies together. So the bad guy can't be a Chinese billionaire anymore. They have to really take that into account because the Chinese consumer has become such an important part of their business. Well, I think that that's a good point because now I think international companies have a number of instances where they ran afoul of local mores or local preferences. Because of that also, Chinese companies, which should be at a very, very big disadvantage vis-a-vis Hollywood studios with their resources, their experience, and their history, may actually be in a position to compete. For instance, when we look at the last few years of the Chinese box office and look at what movies have done well, some very unusual local offerings have actually done spectacularly well. Movies with bad special effects – 
you know, funky comedies, action movies based on patriotic themes. These things have stood head to head and have gone toe to toe with the Avengers type series, with Star Wars, etc. And in a number of cases, it actually beaten the best Hollywood offering. So not only is there, I think, an opportunity from a holistic growth standpoint, because the box office in China basically grows at double digit rates per year, but there's also quite a bit of room for Chinese companies basically to rise up and to become the local equivalents of Hollywood studios for their domestic market, at least. On the subject of access and about this opening of the China market, how have you found the quality of the companies in terms of disclosure, in terms of corporate governance? Because they're not used to meeting foreign investors historically. How do you see that? I think overall, I would describe governance as being somewhere where one needs to be flexible. And what I mean by that is not so much that we accept bad corporate governance, but we recognize that when we meet a private company, it is probably a generation one entrepreneur. And as we know from Silicon Valley, where generation one entrepreneurs have a lot of different hobbies, you know, space travel and the like, they make unusual decisions. That's the reason they became a millionaire or a billionaire. So in other words, I would say that our governance framework, which is uh, you know, fairly extensive from a process standpoint, also gives us enough flexibility where we can understand that the market is full of new companies in terms of the private sector. At the same time, I think from a governance standpoint, we have to look at the state-owned sector and just think about the other stakeholders. Who uses the good or service that that state-owned company offers? What kind of employee numbers do they have? How are their employees compensated, et cetera? Because I think it's just important from a state-owned company standpoint to understand who the other stakeholders might be and to take that into account when we think about valuations. So overall, I would say that uh, if I were to have broad brushes, when we adjust for the nature of the companies, whether it's a generation one entrepreneur or whether it's a state-owned company, and then we think about how they're doing on disclosure, transparency, capital allocation, and the like. I would say that China is clearly in the investable category now. There is still a long road to travel, I think, for certain companies. But we don't find any issues in terms of our ability to source information and to make decisions on that information. Let's shift the focus to risk, the risks that you're seeing, whether it be macro risk or related to trade disputes or what some have seen as a little bit of a crackdown by the government on privacy and on openness, and just generally risks to a foreign investor by investing in the China market. Sure. I would think along a number of lines when I think about the risks in China. You know, number one, there's the obvious one, which is geopolitical. And then that uh, usually lies along a few obvious fold lines. The relationship with Japan, the relationship with India, the relationship with Korea, and of course, the relationship with Taiwan. I think ultimately, one has to understand that, like any other political body, the Chinese Communist Party is number one objective is to stay in power. It is not to decimate the world and bring about nuclear Armageddon in the South China Sea. You know, that sounds facetious, but I do see from time to time that when tensions rise, I think there's a natural tendency amongst us, particularly overseas investors, to think that China will take military action in a number of instances. And time and time again, we've seen that China does not actually take military action. They just bluster. And I think it's important for us as investors to understand that times like that are actually opportunities because valuations do tend to adjust when there are tensions. But if the underlying logic is the party wants to stay in power and that China wants to be a going concern as a country, then China will choose perfectly rational outcomes that any country would choose. The second dimension of risk, I would think, is really financial risk in the economy. And I think this is something that's well flagged, but very difficult to resolve, which is that China's taken on a lot of leverage at this point in time. And that's because in 2009, in 2012, and 2016, China had to do stimulus. And that's also why, I think, taking a step back, why the current round of stimulus that China is offering the economy is just much more thoughtful 
much more surgical and much more focused on getting the private sector to do what it needs to do. Because China realizes that in the previous rounds, we've accumulated a lot of debt. Some of that debt may never be paid back. And we didn't get a lot of growth because building bridges nowhere or empty apartments is not the right way to power growth. It gets you out of the immediate hole that you're in in terms of a recession, but it doesn't necessarily pave the road for anything else other than a lot more worries about leverage and possibly number forming loans for banks to write off. And because I think the Chinese government recognizes those risks that they've accumulated over time, we look at the current round of stimulus, whether it's VAT tax cuts, personal income tax deductions, a little bit of marginal loosening for certain industries. It's just much more supply-side driven and more what the economy needs in terms of proper allocation of resources. Now, the final types of risk I'd like to talk about in China is really just at a micro level, and it's something we had to deal with quite a bit, for instance, in 2018, which is the risk of well-meaning regulators or maybe not so well-meaning regulators regulating things at an incredibly microscopic level. That can be things that you've alluded to, which is, well, you're not supposed to say certain things. You are not supposed to have videos that distract, videos that are not patriotic. You're not supposed to have games that are too addictive. You're not supposed to have offer too many after-school tutoring classes that cause kids to get myopia. These are all true stories of what we had to deal with last year. And that's something I think we need to measure as investors and to take account in our estimates. Last year, I think the market and ourselves learned a lot of hard lessons about the potential financial impact of some of these type of micro-regulations. So it's really something I think that we need to take into account when we model out different scenarios. You've had a lot of conversations with parties on both sides, in the U.S., of course, and also in China. And one of the biggest drivers of the market, as we all know, last year was the tensions between the U.S. and China on trade. To what extent do you think, number one, some of those tensions were justified, meaning the U.S. approach is justified by facts on the ground. And I've heard you describe a pretty interesting view on how China is actually behind closed doors looking at this whole scenario. So how, how would you think about that? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm going to take it at face value that companies have had access issues in China and intellectual property protection issues. Number one, the access issues, there's no doubt that there were problems. How deep-rooted the problems were, whether they prevented Apple or Starbucks from driving incredible revenues from China, I think I'll leave to the macro type of experts. Second, on the intellectual property side, China generally has an intellectual property protection problem. It affects local firms. It affects foreign firms. It's unfortunate, and it's a key reason why China is not as innovative as it should be, because Chinese entrepreneurs oftentimes make the decision to take their intellectual property and then develop in places like the United States, which has better laws. In other words, I think the Chinese are not being deceptive or bargaining when they say, we realize IP is a big issue and we need to solve it for ourselves. They really do. Because I think when we look at things like semiconductors, cutting-edge healthcare, artificial intelligence, et cetera, China's behind. China cannot self-produce a lot of these things. As a broader point, taking intellectual property as a starting point, you know, a lot of Chinese private companies are looking forward to the settlement of the U.S.-China trade dispute in the U.S.'s favor. Because what the U.S. is aiming for is not just access for U.S. companies. What I would turn to be competitive neutrality between different types of firms, whether foreign firms, state-owned enterprises, or private companies. Because private companies in China realize that they operate under uh, an insufficient IP regime. Uh, private companies in China also realize they operate in a regime where state-owned companies can get credit at much cheaper rates. They can draw down our relationships. They can get land cheaply in locations for manufacturing bases, et cetera. So from an overall standpoint, the trade settlement actually might be a good thing, even if, quote-unquote, China is a loser in this particular instance. Now, I'll leave to the experts whether the U.S. is handling this in the right way. But I do say, as an investor, there's some admiration for the current administration in the U.S. having brought China to the table at all and to get China to negotiate seriously. Because what that 
means is that China will be forced to accelerate changes that probably needed to be made anyway in terms of the way it handles the outside world. And importantly, as I mentioned before, in the way it handles its own companies and its own economy. So I think we're going to look back on this. If China comes through and we come to an amicable settlement in the next month or so, we'll probably look at this as one of those watershed moments in China's reform where the country made some difficult decisions and is probably going to be better off for it over the long term. On the subject of You mentioned the fact that Chinese are exploring and actually implementing more supply-side policies to try to reinflate the economy a little bit today, which is very encouraging, more developed market kind of behavior. But it's been a very difficult juggling act, reform versus growth. Investors, economists all understand that over the long term, the Chinese need to reform their economy, make it more private sector, shrink the size of the SOE sector, and reduce the overall debt burden on the economy. But if they do it too quickly, they can stifle growth, which is a gigantic problem for that country. So how do you think they've done in terms of managing this this balance, this juggling act? Yeah, I think historically it hasn't been managed very well because the government has prioritized growth because it's an easy quantitative target for everybody to hit. I also think that when the government measured growth, they didn't really think about quality of growth. And that's the issue that's led to, I think, a lot of the problems and risks that people associated, for instance, with the banking sector in China. I think this time around, and I don't think it's because the Chinese authorities have become more enlightened, but because they have become much more cognizant of the risks, they've handled the current round of stimulus in a much better way and are trying to split a difference and find a more ideal outcome in terms of balancing growth with reform slash risks that might come as a result of taking a lower growth rate. Overall, China erred on the side of quantitatively driven, real estate-driven infrastructure, big building, flooding the economy-driven type of growth in order to get a high real GDP growth rate. And recently, we've moved much more to a broader, all-encompassing, longer-term understanding of what growth should mean and the cost that you're going to be able to pay for the growth over a longer period of time. So things have definitely gotten better. They're not perfect, I think, from our standpoint as investors. But we're certainly in a better place than in 2016 and earlier in the previous rounds of stimulus. So that sounds pretty optimistic for the long term. Well, I think it depends on what one wants to turn to be optimistic. I think I would depart from the regular economists as saying, well, China needs to grow at 6% or will grow at 6%. China might grow at 4%, but a high quality 4 is better in my book than a low quality 6 What this does mean, though, is a sea change in a way that people need to understand China. It's no longer this giant emerging economy that's growing at very, very rapid rates where people are scrambling in order to get basic necessities or the basic luxuries that U.S. families got in the 1950s and 1960s. China is becoming much more complex and much more akin to a developed nation in terms of taking a low overall growth rate, rewarding innovation, and then rewarding companies that provide things that consumers want, not just what consumers need. So it requires, I think, just a difference in terms of the way that we view China, and critically for us as investors and the way we invest in China. No longer is it enough to buy a bank or a steel company and say, I've invested in China growth, because nowadays, if we did that, we didn't invest in China growth. Now we need to go and find the healthcare company that benefits from U.S. companies outsourcing clinical research to China. Now we need to think about, as I mentioned before, you know, the software company that's helping its customers move to the web or the software company that's providing better cybersecurity for its customers as the cloud becomes a much bigger part of every single company's operating model. So in the new world, it pays more to be more micro, more stock-specific, and a lot more detail-oriented in terms of the way we invest. Excellent. Howard, thank you for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks. Thanks. 
thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on April 9th, 2019. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This content is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our company's privacy policy. For further information regarding our regional privacy policies, please refer to the MEA Privacy Policy. For locational Asia-Pacific privacy policies, please click on the respective links. Hong Kong Privacy Policy, Australia Privacy Policy, Taiwan Privacy Policy, Japan Privacy Policy, and Singapore Privacy Policy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197601586K or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355-E. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, 
in Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investments Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm Number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by JP Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514383. 32080, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco JP Morgan SA, in Canada for institutional clients use only by JP Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by JP Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated, and JP Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA, and JP Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2019 JP Morgan Chasing Company, all rights reserved.